0: This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Amazon Web Services. On this episode, I chat with Adrian Hornsby about globally resilient architectures. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 51. I'm Jeremy Daly and this is serverless chats today. I'm speaking with Adrian Hornsby. Hey, Adrian. Thanks for joining me
1: Hey, Jeremy. How are you? So
0: you are a principal developer advocate for architecture at AWS So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your background and what it is you do at AWS?
1: Okay, cool. So first of all, thanks for having me on your show. I'm a huge fan of your show uh, as for my background, um, I, it's a mix of industry and research. Actually, I started my career at the university uh, doing some research and then moved to Nokia Research and eventually some startups, always around uh, distributed systems and real time networks and things like this. And then the let's say the particular things is much of the work that I've done was always on AWS since the very beginning. So it kind of felt very natural eventually to join AWS, which was about four years and few months ago. Um, And I joined as a solutions architect and then quickly moved into an evangelist role. Um, and mostly doing architectures and resiliency and a lot of breaking things. Uh, kind of chaos engineering type of things. <laughs> awesome.
0: Well, speaking of um, resilient architectures, um, that's what I want to speak with you about today. Because you have uh, on your Medium blog, which is awesome, by the way. I mean, I go there. I, Thank Every you. time I go and I read something there... You think you know it all, and then you read something by Adrian and you learn something new, which is absolutely amazing. Um, But so I want to talk to you about this because this is something I think that ties into serverless Pretty well um, is this idea that I think we take for granted, especially as serverless developers, we take for granted um, that there is a bunch of things happening for us behind the scenes, and so we get a lot of this, you know, uh, infrastructure management out of the box. We get, you know, some failover out of the box. We get some of these things, um, but that really only scratches the surface. And there's so much, you know, so much further we can go um, to build truly resilient applications and. You Mm -hmm. have an excellent series on your on your blog um, called the Resilient Architecture Collection. And I'd love to go through these because I think that this is the kind of thing where if you start thinking about global distribution, you start thinking about latency, you and I have been having a lot of latency issues um, <laughs> trying to record this episode um, because you're all the way in Helsinki and I'm I'm over in the United States. Um, you know these are things to start thinking about. Um, so I want to jump in first with this idea of embracing failure at scale, and right. I love this idea because when we build small systems, we think about reliability, right? We try to get as many nines as we possibly can, but when you get to the level. Of global distribution, distributed systems that are sending messages between components, that are sending messages across, you know, the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean. This data is going all over the place. This idea of failure, or at least partial failure, has become the new normal.
1: Yeah. So yeah, and it's uh, I I think it's things have changed a lot in the last few years. I mean, you know, you, you you. before you were on the monolith application and you were trying to make sure your monolith application was always up and running right i think there's even there was even some competition into uptimes you know it was very popular back then to look at uptimes of servers and say ah oh, my server has been up for you know 16 years wow awesome <laughs> <laughs> Uh, But now, you know, we've moved away slowly from monolith and to uh, microservice architecture. And especially, I think, as we move even to the cloud and we use more third party services, systems become naturally more distributed and and they go over the Internet, which is, you know, it's everything but a reliable source of communication. So, you know, you, you have network latency, you have network failures. So there's a lot more things that can go wrong and and i think understanding and accepting that anything at any time can fail is actually a very important thing because it means that you accept failure as a first class citizen for your application and then right. you need to write code and design applications so that at any moment in time there can be failures you know and that that's called partial failure mode as you said and it's a very different concept, you know, than what it used to be back in the day. And in, that means that you need to design your application with different uh, characteristics and uh, different behavior.
0: Right. And so if you're designing your system with these different characteristics and you're thinking, you're forward thinking to, you know, this idea of resiliency. And again, you have a whole bunch of stuff that you do on chaos engineering as well, which is this idea of injecting failure into the system to see you know uh, to see what happens when something breaks um, but that is quite an investment not only an investment in learning right you have to learn all these different parts of the cloud um, and all these other failover systems and what's available um, from that standpoint but also an investment in terms of building your application out that way so yeah. you mentioned in the article this this idea of the investment of building um, you know of building in this resiliency versus what that lost revenue might be, if something fails, so if your billing service goes down or your payment service goes down and you can't charge credit cards anymore, um, if that's just the end of it, right? Like you just say, hey, we can't charge billing or we can't charge your credit card. So our site's down um, versus building something that says, well, we can't charge your credit card right now, but we can take your credit card number and we can calculate the order total and those sort of things. So, what is that trade-off that companies should be looking for in terms of, you know, as you put it, lost revenue versus the investment in building these resilient architectures?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a very good question. I think first and foremost, it's always start from the business side. You know, it's like understanding what are are the requirements in terms of availability, because you know, as many nines of availability you want. Uh, mm-hmm. The matter of fact, the more work you're gonna have to put, and the more resources you're gonna have to uh, to to use, and that you know, resources is money, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And especially, I think the work around availability and reliability is not really linear. You know, you at the beginning, it's you have a lot of gain with small work, but as more nines you want, is actually, I, I would say, the the investment. <laughs> Versus the investment you have to do to gain more nights becomes a lot bigger as you have more nights, right? So it's increasingly hard to to reach more nights. So you know you have to to really think what is it that you want to achieve as a business, you know, and and I, I. I always tell customers to start from a customer point of view as well. Like, what kind of experience do we want? You know, and and as you said, uh, maybe uh, the ultimate experience, you know, is a fully working site. But what are the possibilities for you to, you know, maybe degrade an experience when you have an outage uh, and, and still being able to deliver service? I always take the example of you know, move a a website into a read-only mode, whether it's Mm -hmm. uh, Netflix or Prime Video or even Amazon, you know, when something doesn't work, like how can you, what what kind of features can you still provide to your customer um, without having them giving a a blank screen, you know, and say, oh, sorry, our database doesn't work. Therefore, you cannot use anything on our uh, website. You know, I think there's tons of things, that you can do in between and you know it's all things that you have to take into consideration and then of course it's uh, you know it's like where do you invest it Uh, a lot of people start with the infrastructures but you have to realize that actually the um, uh, resiliency is not only infrastructure you know it goes from the infrastructure of course but it goes to the network the application and also people you know we've talked about People resiliency for sometimes, you know, and uh, right. it's it's so so very important. So,
0: yeah, no, and I think I think that's interesting too about this idea of redundancy in there as well, because obviously, um, you know, redundancy is still a big part of it. I right? just even if we build a system that says, hey, uh, you know if the, the credit card system goes down, we can still accept credit cards. Um, Really, what you'd like to be able to say is, well, the credit card system goes down in this region, and we mm-hmm. could maybe fail over to this region and still provide that service. And that degradation might be a latency increase, for example, right? And um, yeah. so I, I really love that idea of duplicating these components. Obviously, there is a lot that goes into that. When you think about duplicating components, you have databases that need to be replicated yeah. you've got all kinds of other things that become um, it's more complex like, yeah it's exactly gets be more and it goes back to the investment in time right like what is the investment you know is, is that something we want to be able to do is provide you mm-hmm. know four nines or six nines of uptime or whatever it is you actually outline in this post um, the formula for this and I don't want to get overly technical around this um, but essentially it, just to sum it up if you want to get four nines, you need to have three separate um, instances or three separate uh, components running, I guess, or or, uh, regions running um, in order to get that. And so is that something though, that some of those multiple nines are built into existing AWS services?
1: So, uh, well, uh, you're touching a very uh, big, uh, big, big thing, I think. So, uh, I think the formula says simply that if you if you have one component and and this component is for example available 99% of the time, right, uh, which is not really good because it means that you're accepting about three days of downtime per year, which is pretty lo- a lot. So let's say you have an right. instance running somewhere. Uh, the simple fact that you actually duplicate that instance uh, increases availability. To almost uh, to four nines, right? So you go from two nines to four nines, so that gives you 50 minute, 52 minute of downtime, and then you do this another time. It gives you six nines, which is 31 seconds. So I mean, I, I, this is not a new formula. It's been used in electric components, uh, you know, in, uh, in many industries, in nuclear industries. There's some sometimes like six levels of redundancy, you know. Uh, uh, to make sure that you know the electricity always powers the plants and all this kind of stuff. Now, and as you pointed out, there's also a problem with redundancy because it adds more complexity, right? So, um, there's a trade-off between you know how many nines you want and 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 kind of how much complexity you're willing to uh, to accept. So the key is there is is automation, right? And and of course. Um if you if you think about AWS managed services on AWS, already have this idea that they are using three availability zones under the hood. So exactly, that it's duplications of uh, of redundancy to provide this kind of service, so people don't have to use it. So you know, it's. Uh, some service provides it, some not. Uh, there's regional, there's zonal service. I think the the most important is to understand a little bit. So even if you use managed service, I think being curious a little bit how things are built under the hood gives you a very good idea of your levels of uh, of, of availability or possible availability. Because, of course, you know, uh, uh, AWS just provides infrastructure availability, right? It doesn't right. provide your application. So even if you use three AZs under the hood, but your application uh, doesn't have, doesn't use it at the full extent of the capability, you won't right. have four nines of availability, right? So you have to go through the entire stack from you know you, you have to use the infrastructure you have to use your network you have to use your application and of course people because if you deploy an application in and that your application is is across 3 azs but when you deploy it you break it well <laughs> you know it's like right. you lose the benefits right so it really is a synchronizations of 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 the entire layer and and what you want to do. And that's why it's complicated. And I think that's why it's also uh, important to understand how things work. Uh,
0: yeah, no, and I mean, I think this idea too of repeatability of deployment, right? This is the infrastructure as code idea. Um, and the other thing you go into, and you have a bunch on your blog about this as well, is this idea of immutable infrastructure, which is, just again, an entire podcast in and of itself because it's a whole other, you know, probably deep thing that we could go down. Um, but I think the the basic idea behind that is just this, you know, this thought that rather than me trying to update in place, right, which yeah. you always have problems, and of course this, you know, with EC2 instances, it's a it's an even bigger problem. Um, but certainly with with uh, serverless applications, you know, if you're just switching out a Lambda function or something like that. But can you explain just quickly this idea of immutable infrastructure and kind of how it relates to serverless?
1: Right. Uh, I mean, yeah. F- f- immutable infrastructures or immutability is a problem in in computer science in general. But, you know, not only cloud but also programming languages. You know, if you look at Python versus Haskell, uh, uh, for example, uh, you know, and how you assign variables and how the state can be shared between variables, uh, it, it it gives headaches to uh, to developers. Uh, you know, every day. Uh, so. It, the idea of immutable infrastructure is very similar to that is you know you have a variable you have a state in the cloud you have an infrastructure running why do you want to change it you know, don't change it keep it there if you want to modify it is deploy something next to it a parallel to it like a duplication of it with the new version and then slowly move traffic to that new version that gives you two things that gives you that hey you have a working version here that you protect so in if, if anything goes wrong during, during your deployment, uh, you know, sometimes your deployment might work, but after an hour of traffic and cache warms up and all of a sudden you have issues, well, you can very fast roll back. You know, you just need to move the routing back to the existing infrastructure instead of having to redeploy your old application, having to, you know, redo something, you uh, you know, when you have an outage, I think the most important is to react without reacting. right? So that the idea that you have something there that is safe to go back to and that is protected is is mm-hmm. actually very, very nice. And this is, this is what we call imita- imitable infrastructure. And
0: right. there's and many I-
1: ways to do that, whether it's a canary deployment, A-B testing or blue-green. I prefer Canaries because it's a progressive rollout, but, you know, there's many ways to achieve these kind of things.
0: Right, yeah, and, and those canary deployments are built into API Gateway if you're using Lambda functions, for example. But you still have other components that aren't Lambda functions, right? So if, let's say that you deploy a new version of, um, I don't know, an SQSQ or maybe a DynamoDB table or something like that. I mean, that's also where things get a little bit hairy, right, where you start sharing things that are that are data related.
1: Right, yeah, and I mean, and this is very very true uh, i think when you make a deployment it's very important to understand what is your deployment going to affect if it affects database definitely you're going to have to do something else you know you you cannot you cannot exclude the database from your canary uh, so you might you know you might do might not do a canary deployment you might be doing a, a safer deployment you know something with a progressive rollouts within your uh, your existing structure because you need to do a schema update but i think it's it's all it's not all white or black i think there's if most of the time you do deployments you do not do database schema changes it's right. definitely important to try to make those as safe as possible, right? And you know, it's not only serverless; it's it's also any any other infrastructures. And on AWS, you can do this from many different ways, Whether it's Route Fifty Three with weighted round robin, uh, an ALB supports the um, weight uh, for target groups. Then API Gateway uh, supports stage stages scanner with scanners, and actually even. A Lambda function supports carries with aliases weight, right? So I think the most important is to to understand the, that it's not all black and white. And sometimes right. you might you might want to do a deployment that is more problematic, but the important is to limit the number of those, right? So uh, yeah. uh, at least that's that's why I feel. Sometimes you, you can do a mutation, sometimes not, but I think most of the time you should be doing it.
0: Right. All right, so let's move on to the next one, which was avoiding cascading failures, right? And so this is another thing where, uh, from a from a small level, it's really not that big of a deal. It's like, oh, you know, the queue backed up, and then so uh, it it maybe is more aggressive in trying to call some other third party API, and maybe that gets overwhelmed. And we could put some circuit breakers in there. We could do some of these other things. Um, but there is a lot that can happen at scale, right? Like if you have you know, maybe 100 uh, Q messages per second, or 100 Q messages per minute versus 10,000 Q messages per second, when those start backing up, and those start retrying, and then Mm. some of those get through to the next component, and then that component backs up and starts retrying. I mean, you just have this very, very vicious cycle that can happen. And that a lot of that is not built in for you.
1: No, and it's a very good point, you mentioned, you know, I think, the deadly thing, the deadly part of the architectures in distributed systems is that you have many layers and uh, often each of those layers have their own timeout and retry policies. And you know, most of the time, let's say the default timeouts are absurd. They are you know, in Python, the request library, for example, is infinite, the the default timeout. So that means yeah if if your third party doesn't answer it will keep the connection open indefinitely right, right. so that means if your client has a different timeout mm-hmm. very often they do because client libraries is very often within five to 15 seconds mm-hmm. so that means that your client will have a retry policy and eventually will retry the the uh, retry to get the data right and so that means all of a sudden you you exhaust the number of connections from mm-hmm. the backend side. You you know your uh, your connection your connection pool is running out of of uh, uh, of free connections, and that means that this server is unreachable. And what does the client do? It does a retry to the other servers, and eventually you know you have this kind of. Uh, Cascading failures because all the clients are gonna be retrying to all the servers one after another, and eventually that runs out. So it's very important in distributed systems to really understand first the timeouts, you know, and, and set them, you know, yeah. not not yeah you yeah. Know, when you do an npm install or a peep install, you're installing a lot of libraries from other people that maybe didn't think about your particular use case. And very often, I see teams not looking at those timeouts, or you know, they use system default. And what is system default? Well, you know. <laughs> no one knows. So, I mean, you know, I think it's 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 very much related to operational excellence in a way that a hey, how is my application behaving? What are the defaults? And what are the retry policies? You know, are you going to retry hundred times? It makes no sense, you know. Right. So you might want to retry once, twice, maybe three times. But that's you know, don't don't create more problem. You know, if your system is experiencing issue, I think failing fast is is very important, especially in distributed systems. And if you really have to retry, you know, don't retry aggressively. Maybe retry right. ex- with an exponential backoff. You know, like and and especially. Uh, give the system some time to uh, to uh, to recover, right? So the problem a lot of the time, the library is retry maybe even a few times per second. It's like, oh, you didn't get a request, let's retry, let's retry. It's like, what the kids are doing in the car, that are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? You know, it's, it's very annoying for for the drivers, for the backend. So it's the same you know in the distributed in system. What you want is either you do a pop sub, you say, okay, let me know when you get the data, Or you asked it, like, maybe, you know, you make a retry and then the next time you ask after 10 seconds or, you know, 20 seconds. And then the longer you wait, the uh, the longer the interval between the retries. And that's what's called exponential backoff.
0: Yeah, well, the other thing with exponential backoff, too, is it can be tough if you have, like, a thousand requests that try to go through and they all fail, and then they all retry again in one that's, second, and then they all retry in two seconds, and then four yeah. seconds, and then you know 16, yeah. so they keep doing the exponential thing. Um, that's why this idea of using something like Jitter, which Correct. just kind of randomizes when that request or the the, the retry is gonna be is a, is, is a pretty cool thing as well. Yeah,
1: exactly, and it's important, especially in distributed system, because you don't want to have all your distributed system to retry at the same time exponentially as well. I mean, right. you explained it very well.
0: So the other thing you you mentioned item potency earlier. We talked about you know immutable infrastructure and, and that sort of stuff. Um, item potency is another main issue when it comes to retries, right? And I talk about this all the time because mm. essentially, if you retry the same operation just because it looks like it didn't complete doesn't mean it didn't complete, right? Because right. there's also exactly. a response that can fail, not just the request itself. Uh-huh. So, um, so that's one of those things where you know I think. If, if people are unfamiliar with item potency, just the idea that you can retry the same thing over and over and over again, um, anytime you start seeing these failures, right? you need sure. to be able, from a resiliency standpoint, if we go back to resiliency standpoint, um, you know, we, can, we can buffer those, and we can retry, and we talked about that. But what are other ways that we can deal with, deal with these failures in a way that we can respond back to our customer um, to let them know what's happening?
1: Well, one is is degradation, you know. So for and, and you can degrade with two things: stole data, right? So uh, you you maybe you can't access the database, but hey, what was the last known version of or version of that data? And maybe right. serve that. For example, you know, uh, using cache, right? Cache is 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 a good way to to serve requests to customers even if your database is not working and that's why also we often use cdns or you know actually you have caches every layer from your client the cdn the the the, the back end and even the database very often have cache uh, so having all those layers of cache can actually add also some complexity and some problems but the idea that you know if you if you serve data immediately, maybe there's a version of that that you can serve, and, and, and maybe dynamic data can be replaced with stored data, like I, a good example. And, and Netflix has as a very nice UI, you know, with a lot of different microservices for each of their recommendations. Um, if one of them doesn't work, or if a few of them don't work, uh, they fall back into uh, data that is storing in cache. For example, A, hey, most popular topics in in US today, well, it's not dynamic. It's something that can be uh, processed once a day, and then you serve this from the cache. So that means, right. like, if your system is experiencing issue, instead of having all your customers query the database for their particular uh, personalized profile, well, you serve stuff from the from from the cache, right? So that gives gives you uh, a way to you know free some resources from your backend. So that's one thing to do it. Um, And that's used all over the place as well. Uh, And I think it's the idea of circuit breakers as well, right? You you know, you you have a dependency that fails and then, okay, if that dependency doesn't return, what do you serve? Uh, At Amazon, we love serving, it's quite funny, but we serve uh, you know the cute dogs of Amazon. I don't know if you've seen this uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. W- w- when Amazon doesn't work or the service doesn't work, we return cute dogs and all that is on is on cash as well.
0: Yeah, so I, I think I think circuit breakers are one of those things where um I don't think enough people use them, right? Because that's one of those things where when we start overwhelming a downstream resource, um we have to We have to do something to stop overwhelming it, right? So even Mm -hmm. with those exponential retries and, uh, or the, yeah, the exponential back off and the retries and the jitter and all that stuff, if we keep trying the same thing over and over and over and over and over again, um, eventually we're just going to build up so much load in our queues that it's going to be, you know, it's going to take forever to kind of work through it. So um, there is this thing called load shedding. whole other crazy, you know, rejection and and things like that. Um, Can you explain that a little bit? Because I think that that is definitely something that's not built in that you would have to manage yourself.
1: Right. So, I mean, the idea is to protect is to pro, is to protect your backend as much as possible, and there's few ways to do that. Uh, from of course, the clients can try to protect the backend by doing retries and you know uh, back off. But the server, the, the the backing itself, at some point, if it if it really is you know overwhelmed by requests, can do a few things. Right, it can simply reject requests, you know, and say, okay, no, now I'm a, I'm at capacity. Uh, and your API is not the priority, so I'm not going to deal with it, you know, that's rejection. And you can do load shedding, as you say, you know. You know how much time it takes to process a request, right? So basically you say, you know, my request to not uh, reach uh, a timeout, I need to process it in at least seven seconds, right? Um, if it starts to take too long, so if this latency for handling the request start to increase again, you can simply shed the lot. So you you, you remove, you, you say, no, I'm not taking any requests now, because my latency for my request is at maximum, right? Uh, so that's one possibility is to do in uh, 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 to do uh, to do as well. And then I mean the another very important thing is rate limiting right, uh, right. <laughs> I, I, and, and that's again it sounds very simple and and I know people don't very uh, often implement rate limiting from their own services, but they should you know because sometimes one, one day their own services might might do something wrong and and go into an infinite loop because you do a deployment uh, a configuration was not right and then you have an infinite, loop of requesting stuff from a backend that totally destroy your backend. And if you would have had the rate limit in place for your internal services, uh, that, you know, would have avoided this. And I I like this, this idea of rate limiting even your own services, because then you can establish contracts between different services and different parts of your system. You say, okay, my backend uh, is this, this is the API. And these are the contracts, you know, that when other teams, uh, accept to use my service. They, 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 they agree on that contract. Right. And then if if they need more requests, you know, then they have to to modify that contract. So that means my backend team can, knows what is happening with my service because I've seen this happen a lot. You know, you are you have a, a distributed architectures with different team handling different services, and your service becomes popular, and all of a sudden other teams start to use it. And they don't tell you about it. And then, you know, it, it's fine. Or And then you have a marketing campaign and no one tells you about it. And the marketing campaign all of a sudden is worldwide and everyone downloads or connects to the same main point at the same time. Uh, that's because there was no contract between the teams. No one agreed, okay, my service can only uh, handle thousand requests per second for you. And if you want more, you need to, modify your limits, you know, and in, in fact, this is also why we have a lot of limits on AWS, because we have so many distributed services that, you know, teams are forced to negotiate to make sure that we don't kill other people's service, right? So it's, I, I like this idea of, of API contracts.
0: Yeah, no, I, and I, that rate limiting thing too, is this is something that I don't think people think about. You're right. Like if I have a service that is my customer service and some team is responsible for building that. And also the fallacy that serverless is infinitely scalable too. Like if we think about that, like nothing is infinitely scalable, right? Like things can be designed to scale really well um, and handle load and scale up quickly. Like that is possible to do. Still a lot to think about. But the rate limiting point you make is, is really, really good because if I'm a team, I like you know go back to that customer example. I build the customer service and you know a marketing team comes along and says, oh, well, I need to look up this, you know, every time somebody signs up with some form, I need to check to see if they're already a customer and do something with that. If that is some massive thing where all of a sudden now you're getting ten thousand requests per second, Well, guess what? Your e-commerce system that's also hitting your customer tool, you know, your customer service, now all of a sudden that can't get the data that it wants, right? And it's sort of this noisy neighbor type effect, in a sense, where you're depleting services or you're depleting resources from your own services. So (laughs) I love that idea of contracts, rate limiting. I mean, even giving if if an internal team is accessing your own service, handing out API keys with special rate limits and and quotas and things like that. Um, I think that makes a ton of sense. so i I, I love that idea,
1: yeah, yeah, and, uh, it's, and it, you know it, it it gives the team building the service a good understanding of what's required, you know in terms of scalability, because you know if all of a sudden, if you have only thousand requests per second, you know it defines the kind of architecture uh, you you can do. But, if that becomes a lot more, so if you, if all of a sudden you realize, hey, you've given out a lot more API keys, and each of those API keys have thousand requests per seconds, it can easily go to hundred thousands per seconds, maybe right. on the very large companies, and that's a different architecture. It might actually change the entire architecture because all of a sudden you know you have other kind of consideration to take. So it's super important because, you know, um, it gives the ability for the team to understand the service they are building, its scalability patterns, and and prepare for it, right? And, you know, it's what we call a sale, you know, at Amazon. You've heard the term sales, right? So. You know, we define the size of a sale based on this kind of uh, of thing, you know, the scalability patterns, scalability patterns, the rate limiting, that all these kind of things that are necessary to serve customers well, you know. Hey, everyone. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Amazon
0: Web Services, and tell you about their upcoming Innovator Island Serverless Workshop. Innovator Island debuted as a hands-on workshop last year at reInvent, but this year the AWS serverless team is bringing it to you in a virtual format, and it's totally free. Sign up to join AWS serverless expert James Bezick for an hour a day, June 8th through June 12th, to build a complete serverless web application using AWS Amplify, Lambda, SAM, IoT Core, Amazon EventBridge, and more. You'll get hands-on instruction and have real-time access to AWS experts for any extra help you may need. You can register using the Link in the show notes for this episode, or you can search the web for "build a serverless web app for a theme park." And, and so, speaking about of course system availability, um, we do need a way to know whether or not our systems are available, um, and that way is typically using health checks. Um, so, yes. you have a whole another article on health checks in this in this uh, series. Um, the thing that I really liked though was your your description of shallow versus deep health checks, because I think this is something that not everybody, you know, it's not necessarily intuitive to some people.
1: Yeah. So, um, I'd say the, the, the shallow health check is, you know, you check, for example, I'm asking you, how are you? And you define the you is only you and nothing else, right? So you tell me, I'm fine. But you could also decide, hey, no, there's all my family members as well in you and tell me, oh, no, I'm fine. But hey, my wife uh, is tired. My kid is at school. And this is a deep health check because you go much deeper in into what is you. So it's the same for an instance. The same for a system is uh, when you ask the 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 health of, a, of an instance, for example. You can say, oh, is my instance up and running? Yeah, well, that's a shallow, okay, cool. You have access to local network, you have access to local disk, that's shallow, right? It's like your immediate environment. But if the instance needs to talk to a database to cache, can send API queries to a third party dependency, well, that's kind of second level, right? So that's kind of... Also, part of its health because if it can't reach the database, well, it can't maybe do everything. So the deep health check is is, is around that is really understanding the dependencies and the second level and sometimes even third level dependencies of what you're trying to uh, to to contact and then report that because once you report that, then you can adapt you know your query and you can say, okay, my service doesn't have any database. As So I won't do queries that are, you know, changing uh, state, for example, I won't try to change my profile picture or change my name, or I can't offer that, but maybe I can offer APIs that can read only, you know? So Mm -hmm. this kind of health check gives the capability for the client to degrade more uh, wisely, right? But of course you have to be careful what you tell the client. Uh, you know what is available because then you have hackers that can also understand how the system is built. So that's why actually right. when you build a health check, very often it's built in terms of uh, uh, like it's unique to uh, different companies how they work sure. and what what they report to the client and things like this. So. Yeah, I just
0: think it's I just think it's interesting because I've seen a lot of people build a health check for like an API on API gateway where they have the health check is just the lambda function that just responds back and says the service is up and running and I think it was I'm like I, I'm not sure what you're checking there other than that you know that maybe that <laughs> <Lambda> uh, works <laughs> that lambda works right that the lambda service is up and running which is kind of funny um but the but that's the kind of thing where if you were building like a serverless health check like you think well the infrastructure's up and running but you could do things where if you are connecting to a database like what's the you know maybe you're collecting some metrics like what's the average yeah. database load like what's the average response time or the latency there okay. um you know are you able to connect to a third party service how many failures have there been to a third party api in the last minute or the last yeah. you know rolling 5 minute window or something like that so i think that's important to understand because then mm-hmm. you can build rules around that in order to decide whether or not a service is healthy enough for you to keep sending traffic to it
1: exactly and i mean you know and even if it's healthy so for example even if you can query the database but if it answers after 7 seconds is this healthy or you know right. that, so you can have this kind of deep health check that uh, that and so I'm OK, but it takes seven seconds, you know, and so then it forces you to define thresholds as well. And this is what we discussed about later is like, OK, you know, how fast do you want your service to answer? Uh, and that that defines your your. Uh, so this is a business. It's a business requirement. You say, OK, my customers needs to be able to access data in four seconds. If it's not, then you shed, you know, you you do something else. Um, and that defines a lot of the kind of default or uh, that you're gonna have to put in your systems and and, and it just helps you understand and, and build the system a little bit more uh, predictably you know
0: all right so let me ask you this question let's say we build in these really great health checks that you know and we set some threshold we say if the data doesn't come back within 4 seconds or whatever it is then we want to you know route that to a different service or to a different region or something like that what happens if all of your services are coming back with bad health checks.
1: Yeah, this is a good point, and uh, you know, you let let's say you can have bad health checks like this when sometimes you make configuration mistakes or you do a deployment and something doesn't work, and and sometimes and, and you know if everything fails at the same time, you have to assume that it's not broken, right? So it's called it's called failing open. Uh, so it means okay. Uh, there is might be a health check problem. so let's continue sending traffic to the to the uh, to the environment and, and hopefully things uh, things things will work. And this is what we have in places on AWS if you look at. Uh, all the systems that implement health checks, or so Route 53, the ELBs, uh, uh, Lambdas, and or oh, API gateways, and all these kind of things. If if all the health checks fail at the same time, we fail open. So we assume it's more like of a health check problem versus an infrastructure problem.
0: Right. Yeah. And then the other thing too that's kind of cool, um, and this is just something where I don't think people understand how powerful Route 53 is. Um, because if you think about your normal load checks or your, your health checks, um, I know I always would think about application load balancers or you know elastic load balancers, but that is region specific, right? So if, again, I, I can't health check across 10 different regions or five different regions with an ELB, um, I need to do that at a higher level. And Route 53 <laughs> has a ton of capabilities to do this.
1: Right, so uh, now it, Rough History allows you to do health checks on, on, on many different levels, right? And what's the m- nicest feature of Rough History is that it when it checks a health check, it uses eight regions by default from around the world, right? So sometimes on the internet, you have regional outages. You know? Sometimes the route on the internet doesn't work, but it doesn't mean other routes don't work from outside, you know. So uh, Ralph History allows you to to kind of go around these kind of regional outages or intermittent regional outages over the internet because it checks over actually eight regions and then three abilities for each of those regions. This is where the 18% comes from. Uh, it's right. written okay. in the blog, uh, which is a bit weird, but you know it gives us kind of a, an idea that, hey, if 18% of the system uh, is at least answering, uh, is, is if 18% or fewer of the health checks report that is healthy, we'll, cons- we'll consider unhealthy, right? because it's not enough. So it means something is wrong.
0: Yeah. So, all right. So then you you figure out that a particular thing is healthy. Um, you, you get this consensus, which is crazy because you're right. This 18% is kind of a, a weird number. So basically, a lot of them can fail, but it, as long as it, it's up running. But so once it, it decides that something is healthy and it starts routing traffic there, there's also a bunch of other capabilities too, where it's not just route it um, based off of it being available, that's one part of it. But then also, you can route things based off of geographical distance. You can yeah. route things based on latency. latency. Yeah, like what? So how how does some of that stuff work?
1: Um, so that's the case where you have two, two, two systems, right, or two environment, and then you want to switch between one environment and the other. And I would say maybe actually multi region uh, in, in maybe in that case. Um, It's the idea that when you are a customer, right, when you're a customer, you want to have data fast. And if you want to have data fast and you want to have low latency, to have low latency, you have to have your uh, data as close as possible to the end user, right? So in the last, let's say, five, six years, we've seen an explosion of multi-region architectures because now we have global customers, right? You know, app stores have exploded, Basically, we have customers around the world, and each of those customers' game, you know, is a very good uh, good example of that. They want to have as small ping as possible, right? So the latency uh, is, should should be as small as possible. So we have to have systems that are deployed uh, very close to the customer, So in multiple region, um, and then you need to figure out, you know, from that user how do you route the user to a particular uh, backend or a particular environment? And then you have different policies, right? So these are the policies you are mentioning uh, in, in, in Route 53, you have, you know, whether it's geographic, uh, uh, you have latency, uh, you can have weighted round robin. Um, and then of course, all that supports what's called a, a failover. So if any of those fail, you can, you know, fail off to another region. Um so rough history gives you very complex sets of uh, or possibility to make very complex sense of set, sets of routing um and very flexible as well but it can be complex but yeah so this is the idea behind the uh, behind that
0: the thing that's important though about this multi region um or these multi region architecture and of course if you're using latency based routing or you're using geographic based routing um, or even just round robin routing, you're you're looking at sort of this active active type um, environment, right? So it's this is not if this one fails, then shift all the traffic to this. This is I have a, a region in Europe and I have a region in the U.S., right? So I want to minimize my latency, you know, for customers based on that. Um, so when you're designing those types of multi-region active active systems, um, especially from a serverless standpoint you want to be using regional APIs instead of edge optimized ones, correct?
1: Correct. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, this is, especially if you use API Gateway, right? So API Gateway, when it was released, uh, came uh, with an integration with CloudFront. So basically you you got a domain name, which was, well, not regional it was global so you couldn't basically use Route 53, which is also a dns provider to actually route traffic to that particular api gateway right so i think it was about a year and a half ago api gateway really is the regional endpoints uh, so that means now you can have an api gateway without cloudfront integration um, and that means now you can use rap uh, rap history to actually uh, route traffic to directly the API gateway in your region. Actually, you can have several API gateway in your own, in one region, as right. long as they have regional endpoints. So you can have multi, I would say multi API gateway uh, routing uh, in one region via Route 53. Uh, so, I, and, and this, this goes into more complex discussion because a lot, I see a lot of people uh, design an application per region, right? So you use one API gateway uh, for your serverless uh, application per region. but you know if you if you if you think about it, it the blast radius is high because you have mm-hmm. one API for one one API gateway for one region. Um, what if that API gateway has the issue, right? Well, you could have several API gateway. you could have two, three, four, uh, and so that means you you know, you, I think you need to think about how do you uh, shard basically an application, you know, and, and the idea of sharding is, okay, uh, it, on, on Amazon, we call that a sale, right? We say, okay, yeah. uh, we, have a, we have a sale which has uh, an API gateway, maybe Lambda, DynamoDB, and that sale will take, let's say, a hundred customers, right? And as... As long as there are less than 100 customers, we only have that particular cell. But if we have more customers growing, instead of growing the cell, which we know how how it behaves because we've been testing it, we understand the pattern, we can deploy it, it's repeatable, it's very well understood, well, we replicate that cell. So that means at some point we might have hundreds or thousands of cells in one region and you can do this as a customer also today you can say oh, well, i want to have 10 api gateway lambda and dynamodb pair uh, per region why not yeah. you know uh, now it doesn't mean you need to do it you need to really understand the 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 thing but that's that's the idea of uh, of of uh, regional endpoint for api gateway is that you are not limited to one <laughs> per, right. for your region right
0: right yeah no and i think that i think that's one of those things too where it just um i've always fallen back on the edge optimized ones because it was just kind of there but now with the new http apis you don't have <laughs> you don't have yeah. those so i like i like that idea though of being able to say i have more control now of which you know of which endpoint my my user gets to i can control that latency a little bit better so yeah. um interesting thing to think about. Certainly, um, you know, another another thing to put on your list of, uh, of, uh, of, of things to learn and things to do. Um, all right, so we talked a little bit about caching earlier, um, but you have a whole other article on this about caching for resiliency. So um, there are obviously a million different, you know, a million different things to think about when it comes to caching. How many layers of caching do we need? That kind of stuff. Um, but there is um, there are some really good reasons for like putting, let's say a CDN in front of um, uh, in front of your
1: application. Right. So yeah, that's a, I think the CDN is probably the first layer of cache that people uh, tend to use simply because it has massive security implication, right? Uh, so CDN, like, to explain a little bit what a CDN is, is a collection of servers that are Globally distributed they are globally distributed closer to the customer is it's way more uh, Basically an a point of presence or a, I think if people have seen this for cdn. It's called pop Uh, it's mm-hmm. a point of presence. It's not it's not matching the aws region So there are way more pops around the world that there are aws regions. So that means they are way closer to the customers so each of these POPs is basically an entry point into an, an, an application, right? Uh, so when you use a CDN, uh, uh, the CDN use, uh, uses some traffic policies that f- basically makes the requests of the customers come to the closest POP available to the customer, making that request. Uh, okay. Um, so it's also... Uh, allows you to have hundreds of entry points into your application uh, dispersed around the world. So that means instead of having one entry point, you know, for example, the API gateway, uh, you put a CDN on top of it, you have hundreds of entry points hiding your API gateway. So that means that doing a DDoS attack on the API gateway becomes a lot harder because all of a sudden your attacker needs to attack hundreds of points of presence on the CDN to be able to do DDoS attacks, right? So people use CDNs, well, to in- to improve latency of static content, but also to make it resilient to DDoS attacks because, well, it's much harder to attack 160 points versus one, right?
0: Right, and CloudFront and and um, and like AWS WAF, like have some of these things sort of built into them too, to protect against like you know UDP reflection attacks and SYN flood and some of those other things too. So a lot of that, um, uh, a lot of that, you know, is is good to protect. Just from a, I guess from a resiliency and an uptime standpoint, we talked about overwhelming systems, right? So if you have a DDoS or something that's happening that is that is overwhelming that system, being able to shed some of that at the CDN layer because you know AWS is smart enough to to pick that up is uh, uh, is is just great, is great and a good yeah. layer to have there. Um, but beyond just the the I guess the um, you know sort of the hacker attack or the, the protection um, that you get there. Um, you know, depending on what type of data you're serving up. So let's go back to the Netflix example, that top mm. 10, um, you know, 10 uh, uh, movies in the U.S. or whatever it is, top 10 shows in the U.S., that particular thing is pre-generated and it is served from cash. And that gives us this idea of sort of, I guess, like, you know, page caching even, like even if it's a short yeah. amount of time. So what what's what are some of those things that you can do where you can reduce pressure on that downstream system or on your system? Like some of those different techniques for caching. Right.
1: So uh, to continue on the CDN, right? Like what you explained, what you what you said uh, was, you know, CDN is is actually a cache, right? It's a cache layer to serve content. Primarily, people use CDN to serve video or uh, or uh, uh, pictures or you know, uh, like static static files like you know uh, things like this. The, the they often forget that actually CDNs and it's CloudFront for example uh, can also cache dynamic content. You know and dynamic content even sometimes cache for a couple of seconds can save your backend. You know, uh, if you for, let's take the marketing campaign, for example, you know, let's say that the marketing campaign is actually uh, a, a list that is dynamic of, you know, uh, uh, something that change. And if people press refresh every seconds because they want to see who is winning the competition or something, um, if you don't cash even those dynamic content and, you know, the content of the list, even few seconds, uh, that means everyone is going to query the backend, right? Um, so I think caching dynamic content even for one second or two seconds is very, very important, right? least think about the possibilities of doing that. Um, so that's kind of also something that CDNs can do and often people forget about it, right? Um, so that's... Uh, it, it, does it answer your question?
0: I think it does, yeah, no I, I and and um, and I mean, I guess where I'm trying to go with this too is that there's just a million different things that you can do to cash, and there's multiple layers of cash right. um there's multiple strategies or caching patterns that you outline yeah. um in here, and I think that that you know people need to go read the article, I think in order to really understand this stuff mm. um I don't know how much justice we're doing it, um you know, trying to explain some of it, but i I think one of the things we should touch on just in terms of caching in, in general, um, and this is a quote that you have in your article, is that for every application out there, that there is an acceptable level of staleness in the data.
1: Um, yep. So
0: just what do you mean by that?
1: So, uh, you know, it's it's exactly the idea of caching dynamic content, Um Well, even even if you claim your application is very dynamic and you claim that, hey, no, I need to, I can't cache because for example, it's a top 10 list of of real time trends on Twitter. Uh, Let's say Twitter trends, right? Right. Uh, People expect that it's real time. Uh, So I would say by default, if you think about real time, people wouldn't think, okay, I need to cache that, but hey, if you have millions of clients around the world right. uh, requesting that data, absolutely you want to uh, fake it real time. It's kind of it's you know you you might query your downstream uh, server or service that tells you the trend, but maybe you know if you have thousands of clients connecting at the same time, uh, you don't want each of those client to uh, query your your service and you you will just serve it from cache, right? Uh, or, or make sure that the the, the requests are uh, packed into one single request and then ask the downstream service and then, uh, you know, serve back the content. Um, so it's just this idea, like any application out there, even if you think it should be or must be real time, um, it, it's very important to think about, you know, uh, uh, the staleness. And staleness is, you know, like how how real time my data needs to be, you know, okay. Right. Or even if it's maybe three seconds old, is it really that old or is right. it not usable? Because it's also something you can fall back, you know, like uh, so if if your database is not accessible, it's like maybe you can serve back the trend of Twitter that was maybe an hour ago, you know, and just instead of, and, and you can say to your customer, you say, oh, uh, we're experiencing issue. This is the trend uh, one hour ago. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. Yeah. It's a good UI. It's a good use of stale data, and and why would customers say, "Oh, you know, uh, uh, you're cheating on us"? <laughs> no, it's right. like, you know, it's it's it's, a, it's I think it's is it's a good example of that.
0: But that's actually that brings me to the caching patterns because that is one of those things where, like you said, there there's acceptable levels of staleness in data. So again, if a data is five minutes old, and you know we don't know how many tweets are about. I don't know Tiger King or some you know popular popular thing that's mm. happening on Twitter or whatever. If we don't know how many you know, what the most accurate count of tweets is for that, that's probably not going to kill us if that's five minutes old or a minute old or whatever. Um, but so there's a couple different pa- uh, patterns here for caching. So obviously we have cache, uh, you know, cache aside, inline yep. caches, things like that. But the ones that I think are more interesting that I'd like to talk about is this idea of soft and hard time to live. Explain right. that.
1: Um, so uh, a soft time to leave is kind of um, your requirement in terms of staleness, right? So you say, you say, uh, my, m- let's say my Twitter trend list, uh, I want to refresh it uh, every, let's say every 30 seconds. So you give it a TTL of 30 seconds, a soft TTL of 30 seconds. So if my if my service requests the, the cache and the TTL the soft TTL is expired and everything is fine you go and query the service right but if my service doesn't answer at that moment so you are you've passed the soft TTL now your downstream service doesn't give you the data what do you do do you return mm-hmm. a 404 or you actually fall back and you say all right, uh, my soft TTL is expired, but hey, I'm still within the hard TTL, which is a, hey, it's one hour, right? So right. I, and then you say, okay, uh, you know, your service returns the hard TTL, and you say, oh, well, sorry, we just have one hour, uh, one hour old data uh, because we're experiencing an issue. So again, it's it's a possible degradation, and actually, quite often, cache. Uh, uh, could be used like this. I think it's uh, it's all about you know how you create your ash and uh, and things like this and how you define your eviction and uh, and policies and things like this.
0: All right. Yeah, and I think that that is um, something that a lot of people don't think about. I think the most common way to you know to get rid of your cache is just to set a TTL on a Redis you know key or something like that, and then that expires, and you're like, oh wait, now I can't fetch new data what do I do? do. So, yeah. right. So that's really interesting that th- those two ideas there is something um, that people should be thinking about. All right. And then the other thing was this idea of requests coalescing, because this is another problem you have is mm-hmm. if it takes one second to repopulate the cache or to run that that request, if you have a thousand people requesting that before the first one completes, um, you need to be able to handle that in a certain way.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. Like you go, uh, you yeah. know, you have one request and then thousand requests asking for the same data, but you don't have it in the cache. What do you do? Yeah. Right. So one way to do it is you say, okay, I'll take one of these requests, they are all the same, and I'll you know, I'll get the result and then use the same result for yeah. everyone. So that you can't you park basically all the 99, 9, 999 requests on the side and say, wait a second, I, I went to ask and I'll give you the data. You know, right. uh, this, d- this is very related to independent, uh, independency and things like this, you know, uh, uh, so that, you know, understanding what requests are you doing, uh, what data can be returned from your API and if it's dynamic or static content, uh, but actually, some frameworks support these kind of things out of the out of the box, so it's important at least to figure out, uh, you know, uh, if your framework supports that.
0: Yeah, and I think there are some patterns that you can that you can build fairly simply um, in in order to do that. If even mm-hmm. if you're using a Lambda function, for example. So, yeah. um, but anyways, very very uh, cool stuff.
1: And Go if you ahead. use DynamoDB actually uh, with DAX, uh, it supports this kind of uh, request yeah. uh, 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 calling ex- call It's very yeah. hard. Hard to pronounce for me.
0: <laughs> hard word, hard word to say. Um, I think that you know the last thing you sort of point out is just you know be aware of where your caching happens, right? Because there's just so many layers of caching sometimes um, that it can uh, can cause a lot of problems. Um, all right, so the last thing I want to talk to you about, and then I'll let you go, uh, is this this article you wrote about building multi-region active-active architecture on AWS. Um, that was um that was serverless, right? So if you were doing that. Um, you know, what just give me a quick overview how how would you build a active active multi-region serverless application on AWS?
1: <laughs> yeah, asking me for appeal, uh give me a appeal <laughs> multi-region active active. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, I If you define active-active, I think, uh, before giving you the solution, if you think about active-active, a lot of people think about active-active and they think about data replication, right? Right. Um, So active-active doesn't necessarily involve data replication, right? So you can have active-active, but federated as well. So that means you have local database. And if you look at Amazon retail site, you have Amazon uh, UK, Amazon US, Amazon uh, Germany—they all it's an active, active system. Right? They all the regions are active, but they are federated. So, as a business, you need to understand. Okay, first, what is it that you want? Do you want a multi-region with federation, so local database, or do you really want to replicate all your data under the hood? Right? So. If you really want to replicate the data under the hood because this is what I used uh, during uh, in this blog post, uh, I was using Dynamo global table, which allows you to replicate the data across multiple uh, region, uh, you know, uh, so that means that if one region is experiencing issue, my data is replicated uh, asynchronously to other regions, so then I can fail over uh, to another region to get that data. Uh, and, and again, This is uh, this is when you say multi-region, it doesn't mean multi-continent because um, in the U.S. you have multiple regions. So when you do multi-region, you need to be very, very careful about your compliance and your, uh, you know, uh, uh, in which in which region of the globe you're operating. If you do this in Europe, this GDPR, so you Mm -hmm. probably don't want to have Dynamo in Europe and uh, U.S. being replicating data from customers because, All of a sudden, you have different kind of uh, governance on the data uh, and regulation and laws and stuff like this. So, you know, you can use multi-region within one continent because you want to maybe serve customers faster uh, because you want to decrease latency. You know, at the end of the day, uh, when you do, we did test on the retail side, 100 milliseconds latency. Uh, Reduced uh, sales by one percent on on the retail side, Amazon retail side. So, hundred percent, hundred milliseconds latency is very, very little, right? So, when you are between, let's say, Germany, Ireland, France, or you know other regions in you, or even east side or west side of the U.S., uh, you can easily have hundred milliseconds latency uh improvement by choosing the right region closest to the customer so once you've done that then you know you can define multiple multiple regions by which you want to uh, serve your data uh, within the respectable law and governance and then of course you can use route 53 uh, to direct traffic between different region or there's also uh, the new global accelerator uh, that it uh, doesn't use DNS, but it uh, uses IP uh, IP anycasts uh, to uh, to move traffic. So you avoid all the DNS caching, which is a problem. It's a whole other uh, <laughs> a podcast uh, <laughs> uh, if you want to talk about DNS caching and and the problems of DNS. But yeah, you have multiple solutions to uh, to do this. Uh, now, word of warning: multi-region is, you know. Uh, it adds complexity as well right so it's very very important that if you decide to go multi-region that is a very very strong business case or uh or that you know uh do you know really well what you're doing and i I always say to customers starts with maybe multi-region one region automate it as much as possible so that you can just you know, move your automation to another region and right. it, and then avoid data transfer between regions, right? right? Try to federate the data. And then, you know, it, I, I think federation works great because, you know, it, it, if I have a service like Amazon.com, right? Uh, it, I'm using mostly the German, uh, the German Amazon because it's closer to me and then the delivery is, is, is obviously uh, uh, better. I rarely go to US, so you know if I there's no reason for Amazon to transfer my data or my shopping cart between Germany and US. So if I go to the US store, I need to recreate a cart and you know re- uh, authenticate again. So it's it's still an active active. It would serve me better if I moved to the US, but how many times a year am I in the US uh, to shop? Very little, you know. At the end right. at the end of the day. Uh, it's important to understand that maybe you know it, it's acceptable if I'm in the US that actually I'm routed to the German Amazon and I do my shopping from there maybe twice a year with increased latency, and that's okay. I don't need to have very complex systems to support the three days in the year running in the US and replicate all my data and and make sure everything is there. So it's very important to. To to really have a strong understanding of you know if you're building multi-region, are you doing it for the right thing? Right, right. So
0: yeah, no, and I think I think that I, I think you made a really good point there, where it's like that the federated aspect of it. Especially depending on where it is, like if you're using three regions in the U.S. for some reason, then federated might not work because you could get routed to different, you know, you might get routed to different regions. Um, you might want to use global tables in that case. But yeah. if you were just doing one region in the U.S., one region in Europe, one region in South America, or something like that, um then maybe just replicating say the login data right like just the authentication yeah. data using a global table for that but then federating you know the the other data locally the customer you might data. even yeah. the customer yeah right cuz so so some of that other stuff so i think that's a that's a really interesting approach um people have to go read your articles seriously um and i'm going to put all this into the show notes um so honestly, thank you for for sharing not only here and dealing with the technical issues that we had um which might just have to be another blog post at some point we'll we'll discuss. Um but but seriously, thank you for writing all those articles and sharing all that knowledge. Um and just, you know, giving people the insight into some of this stuff which I think is um is not publicly available, or it's not readily available. You kinda gotta dig through that stuff to find out what is important and what's not important. And you do a great job of summarizing it and going deep on those things. So thank, thank you, you very much, much for that. Um, so, if people want to get in touch with you um, and find out more about what you're working on and your blog posts, how, how do they do that?
1: Uh, so, I'm um, pretty much everywhere on the internet. at Horn. <laughs> so A D H O R N. Whether it's uh, Twitter, Medium, or even Dev uh, Dev2. Um, so, yeah, some I, I'm, I'm pretty much there, and you can any, any anybody can ping me on Twitter. I have open DMs. Uh, so, uh, if you want to talk about anything, I'm happy to uh, to answer. I'm much better at writing than I'm at answering live questions. So I hope I uh, I, I hope I I did justice to what you expected. Uh, but uh, again, thank you very much for having me on, on your show. Uh, I, I'm a huge fan of what you do, uh, Jeremy. So uh, thank you very much for for everything. Thank you.
0: I am a fan of yours as well. So thanks again, and we'll get all that information to the show notes.
1: Thank you very much.
0: And that's this week's Serverless Chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Adrian Hornsby for being my guest this week and to our sponsor, Amazon Web Services. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com 51. For more Serverless Chats, subscribe, check us out on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with me on Twitter, at jeremy_daily, And if you want to keep up to date on everything Serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.